Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Ukrainian fighters trapped in Mariupol calling on world leaders to help evacuate them as Russian leader Vladimir Putin issues a warning to Western countries. The subject of election integrity has become a topic of hot debate. Find out what Florida is doing to increase voter confidence. White House visitor logs show that one of Hunter Biden's close business partners visited the White House multiple times during the Obama years. These include a meeting with then-Vice President Joe Biden. The U.S. Trade Representative accuses China of dominating markets using their intellectual property laws. At the same time, it acknowledges Taiwan's efforts to protect trade secrets. Some Ukrainian soldiers trapped in the besieged city of Mariupol are pleading for help. They want to evacuate civilians and troops who are holed up in a steel plant. Entity's Jessica Beatty reports. In this video posted online Wednesday, a Ukrainian Marine commander in Mariupol urged the international community to help evacuate Ukrainian fighters and hundreds of civilians trapped in the Azovstal steel plant. There are more than 600 wounded in our unit. The wounds are of various seriousness. In here, there are no conditions, no medications, no personnel that could help them. There are also wounded civilians. We try to help as much as we can. The deputy commander of the Azov Regiment is also calling on world leaders to help organize a third party for evacuations. He says civilians should exit first and then the soldiers. We military commanders want our boys to remain alive, but not in captivity. They will be killed in captivity. The Azovstal steel factory is the last remaining Ukrainian stronghold in Mariupol. The city is crucial to Russian efforts to secure a land bridge to the Crimean Peninsula, which it annexed from Ukraine in 2014. The deputy commander says Russian tactics are constantly changing. The tactic now is like a medieval siege. We're encircled, but they are no longer throwing lots of force into breaking our defensive line. They are conducting airstrikes. Last week, Russian leader Vladimir Putin claimed control of the city. He said the plant should be sealed off so that not a fly could escape. The deputy commander says they're running out of supplies, but his forces will fight for as long as needed. As long as our troops are here, as long as we're here and we're holding the defense, as long as we resist, as Rostov is located in the city of Muropol, the city is not theirs. Meanwhile, Vladimir Putin Wednesday warned that Moscow would mount a quick response if Western powers intervene in Ukraine. Putin said his military wouldn't hesitate to use Russia's most advanced weaponry. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. There is no significant danger of radiation at the Chernobyl plant in Ukraine. That's according to the International Atomic Energy Agency. Officials measured radiation in the area over the past few days and said although there's a slight increase, it's still below the authorized levels. The nuclear power plant is back in Ukrainian control after it was taken by Russian forces a few weeks ago. The head of the IAEA also says he hasn't received information about reports that Russian soldiers may die from radiation exposure in the Red Forest, which is located close to Chernobyl. Some Ukrainian farmers have adopted a new strategy to protect themselves from shelling and bullets. They are now wearing body armor to plow their fields. Others, determined to stay where they are, have converted their cellars into bomb shelters. Here are the details. Ukrainian farmers in a southern region near the front line of the military conflict are now wearing body armor to plow their fields. 
Soon after the war started, rockets began falling next door to the fields where a contract farmer named Yuri works in the Zaporizhia region. He now mans a tractor in a bulletproof vest and a ballistic helmet provided by his employer. We go out, pass the checkpoints, get to work, drink tea and coffee, put in our vests and go. We fill up the gas tank and then go to the fields. If there's shelling, we pack up and go back to the office. Other farmers in the surrounding fields have also started to follow suit. Although shelling in this area has increased in recent weeks, Yuri and a colleague are determined to plow the fields this spring. Yuri said he's used to the vest and helmet, which he wore during his military service years ago. Another farmer in a small Ukrainian village to the east converted his cellar into a bomb shelter with minimal supplies and a jar of pickles. He refuses to flee. I'm not leaving here. This is my land. My relatives are buried here, so I'm staying in place. He says the fighting rages nearby and he is afraid at times. Before the war, his village had a population of 1,200. Now about 400 people remain in the village, which is in the Kharkiv region, close to the Donetsk border. Ukraine's military says Russian forces are pressing their offensive in the Kharkiv and Donetsk regions, and they have captured several settlements. But according to Britain's defense ministry, Ukraine still retains control over the majority of its airspace. Holocaust survivors from Ukraine find themselves forced out of their homeland once again as Russia's war in Ukraine continues. Some 300 have fled to Israel. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more. Dova Govergevis was in her 20s when World War II started. She was forced to leave Kyiv to escape the Nazi invasion of Ukraine. Now, at the age of 100, she had to flee Ukraine again, this time in the face of Russian invaders. I'm not a politician. I'm an ordinary babushka that already endured one war. Of course, I said to myself, oh my God, what a nightmare. Here we go again with the war. Bombing, evacuation, leaving your house behind, not being sure if you will stay alive or not. But about Putin himself, what could I say about him? Gover Geves is one of almost 300 Jewish Holocaust survivors from Ukraine who have been given refuge in Israel. Since Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered his troops into the former Soviet Republic two months ago. Back then, we knew that we had an enemy, Hitler. Hitler and Germany had attacked our country. But now it turns out to be that we are fighting against the country that we used to call our elder brother. Valery Bandersky was just seven when he fled to Kazakhstan to escape the Nazis. Nearly 80 years later, he has had to abandon his homeland once again after Russian forces invaded Ukraine. I have lived through two tragedies. I'm twice a refugee. I was fleeing twice. I was fleeing from Hitler then. Now I have fled from Putin. Naturally, it is hard. I believe the humankind won't allow it. I believe humanity must learn something. In any case, I'm expecting that all of the Western countries won't allow all this. They'll put a stop to all this. Sort out that Putin. I hope for that. Not all those who lived through the Holocaust have survived the Russian onslaught. Boris Romanchenko survived detention in four separate Nazi concentration camps in World War II. Last month, he was killed by shelling in Kharkiv at 96 years old. According to the UN, more than 5 million Ukrainians have moved abroad to escape the Russian onslaught. Andrew Thomas, NTD News.
The war in Ukraine has taken a toll on Holocaust survivors inside and outside Ukraine. Many have fled Ukraine to Poland amid Russia's invasion that Moscow says is to denazify Ukraine. We hear how one family is personally affected. Joining us today is Dr. Selena Nadelman, who is a cancer biopsy doctor. Thank you for coming on the show, Dr. Nadelman. Thank you for having me. Now, the Holocaust and Human Rights Education Center in New York is condemning the ongoing invasion of Ukraine. The center says it supports the Ukrainian people, including Holocaust survivors still living in the country. How has the war affected Holocaust survivors in your family? Well, as a um, daughter of a Holocaust survivor, it has actually uh, created quite some um, anxiety in our household. Uh, my mother was five when um, the Nazis invaded Poland and was um, uh, actually uh, trekked to the east to uh, avoid the Nazi invasion as they invaded Poland from the west. Um, to my grandfather's hometown, which was Tarnopol, uh, which is now Ternopol, which is actually in Ukraine. Um, my mom has uh, suffered, obviously, from World War II and the, um, and the experience that she had as a Holocaust survivor. Um, thankfully, she survived, and uh, my grandparents, who were deported to Siberia at the time, survived, and they met up um, at the end of the war. However, right now, it is um, rehashing uh, new um, and old memories. My mom, um, you know, she never was very morose about the Holocaust. Uh, she wasn't one of those people who cried or talked about it in, in any kind of, um, you know, scary way when I was growing up. But now uh, she's almost 88. Um, she's one of the few remaining Holocaust survivors who can actually um, speak about her story. She does uh, go and educate schools about what's going on, and she is feeling quite anxious these days. Dr. Nadelman, that must be so tough for her, just reliving all of this. And how has this war affected your husband? Well, you know, initially my husband had um, uh, escaped the Soviet Union as a, as a refugee, and so his view of um, his home uh, back in the Soviet Union, which was, you know, it was Ukraine, but part of the Soviet Union, he was glad to be, to have that behind him. And he really didn't have any ties uh, that he wanted to maintain uh, because of his experience um, uh, in the Soviet Union. But now what's interesting is as he watches, I mean, we're glued to the TV all the time or we read things in the news, he is horrified. He is, it is, it is tapped into his subconscious and he, he actually feels terrible for the people and he watches his city. He grew up in Kiev and he, he's just hoping that, that, you know, Russia doesn't decimate all the, you know, beautiful monuments and the old buildings that have been there for thousands of years. Um, he's always said that Kiev is a beautiful city and he loves, you know, cities that remind him of Kiev, that, have, you know, it's very uh, beautiful and has parks and greenery and the beautiful like, buildings and monuments. And he fears that it will all be destroyed. Well, Dr. Nidelman, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. A new Defense Department report estimates how much equipment the military left behind in Afghanistan last year. And it's a lot, about $7 billion worth. 
That's close to half the $18 billion worth of gear troops brought into the country between 2005 and 2021. It's viewed as problematic because all that equipment fell into the hands of the Taliban. The items left behind include aircraft, about 40,000 military vehicles, more than 300,000 weapons, and close to 10,000 air-to-ground munitions, radio systems, and nearly 42,000 pieces of other equipment, including night vision gear, are also among the items. The withdrawal from Afghanistan was highly controversial and chaotic. Lawmakers from both political parties have criticized it. Economic growth in the U.S. isn't picking up steam. The Bureau of Economic Analysis released data on the nation's gross domestic product Thursday. The GDP dropped 1.4 percent between January and March. That's a big difference from the final quarter of 2021 when the measure grew nearly 7 percent. It's also the worst performance for GDP since midway through 2020 when the pandemic was in full swing. One of Hunter Biden's business partners visited the White House at least 19 times during the Obama administration. That includes a sit-down with then-Vice President Joe Biden. Here's more on that story. According to White House visitor logs, Eric Schwerin made at least 19 trips to the White House from 2009 to 2015. Schwerin is the former president of Hunter Biden's investment firm, Rosemont Seneca Partners. Logs show that Schwerin met directly with Joe Biden in the West Wing on November 17, 2010. Schwerin also had several meetings with other White House officials. That was when Hunter Biden was overseas handling multi-billion dollar deals, including those in China. Schwerin's ties to the Biden family were first revealed by the New York Post just prior to the 2020 election. Reports at the time made public emails from a laptop that Hunter Biden left in a Delaware repair store. Hunter was then accused of using his father's political power as leverage in overseas business deals. In 2019, Joe Biden said that he never spoke to his son about his overseas business dealings, but his meetings with Schwerin called into question those remarks. The White House is so far not commenting on the reports. Lawmakers in Congress are now urging an investigation into Hunter Biden about Schwerin's access to the White House. Senator Ted Cruz told the New York Post it's increasingly obvious that Hunter Biden's business revolved around providing access to his father in the highest levels of power. The clear solution is a special counsel investigation to fairly investigate the disturbing allegations of Biden family corruption. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says U.S. officials, both past and present, are under constant threat. Blinken answered questions before a Senate committee Tuesday about what is being done to protect U.S. officials. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. Senator Ted Cruz started off by asking Secretary of State Antony Blinken about the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or IRGC, which is a branch of the Iranian Armed Forces. Is it true that the IRGC is actively trying to murder former senior officials of the United States? I'm not sure what I can say in, uh, in an open setting, but let me say generically that there is uh, an ongoing threat uh, against um, uh, American officials, both present and, uh, and past. Cruz then said there have been multiple public reports that the United States asked Iran to promise not to murder a former Secretary of State, and they refused. Cruz then pressured Blinken on this very issue. Did you ask them stop trying to murder the former Secretary of State, and did they sit there and tell you, no, we're going to keep trying to murder him? One of the strong messages we send to them is they need to stop targeting our people, period. And here, here are the facts, as I mentioned a, a few minutes ago. But did they tell you no? Um, again, I'm not going to characterize what they said. They know what they would need to do to address this problem. 
Blinken said the threat to U.S. officials has gone up since the United States got out of the Iranian nuclear deal and designated the IRGC as a foreign terrorist organization. Jason Perry, NTD News. Florida is taking steps to increase election integrity. The governor just signed a new bill that strengthens existing voting laws and creates a delegated office to deal with voter fraud. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has the details. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed Senate Bill 524 into law on Monday, creating the nation's first Office of Election Crimes and Security. The new office at the Department of State has the specific task of investigating and prosecuting voter fraud. The new bill strengthens existing voting rules in the state of Florida and aims to give voters more confidence in the integrity and security of the election process. I think that this office will be, will be very, very much uh, appreciated and it will allow us to have people who really specialize in election security and uh, in election integrity. DeSantis says penalties for ballot harvesting may not have been severe enough to deter it. That's when someone collects completed mail ballots and delivers them to election offices or drop boxes. We need to do our best to make sure that that is a, a secret private process. And if you have someone that can go collect dozens of ballots in, in, you know, across uh, an area, you, know, you wonder how did those ballots get into that individual's hands and it creates a lot of problems. The new law increases the penalty from a first-degree misdemeanor to a third-degree felony, punishable by up to five years in prison, a $5,000 fine, and up to five years probation. We're taking a very strong stand against ballot harvesting. I think it's justified, and I think that people can have confidence that if someone's voting absentee, they actually got the ballot, and they actually uh, sent it in. Other new measures in the bill include having the Florida Department of State strengthen ID requirements for mail-in ballots and requiring supervisors of elections to check voter rolls every year for ineligible voters. It also bans the use of private donations, what DeSantis calls Zuckerbucks, to administer elections in the state. During the 2020 presidential election, around 2,500 election offices in the U.S. received grants from a Democrat-led nonprofit called Center for Technology and Civic Life. The nonprofit received funding from Google and Facebook. The Chan Zuckerberg Initiative was one of the largest donors, contributing over $350 million. The nonprofit then regranted the funds to local election officials, coining the word Zuckerbucks. No way. There's not going to be any nook and cranny. You are not getting Zuckerbucks in any of this stuff. Florida state representatives say they want to set an example of a well-run election for the rest of the nation to see. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed a bill into law this week. It authorizes the state's top law enforcement agency to initiate investigations into voter fraud. Previously, only the Secretary of State's office was handling probes into alleged election violations. The new law says the Georgia Bureau of Investigation has the authority to issue subpoenas for election documents, but that's only when the violations are serious enough to cast doubt on the outcome of an election. The governor said he earmarked more than half a million dollars in next year's budget for new investigators. Critics worry the measure will intimidate voters and election workers. Supporters say it's not a partisan response to the 2020 election, but a good government measure to safeguard election integrity. Wednesday marked Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer's last day on the bench hearing oral arguments. Breyer is a Bill Clinton nominee. He served on the bench since 1994. He announced in January plans to step down at the end of the current session, which will likely come in late June or early July. With his voice cracking with emotion, Chief Justice John Roberts praised Breyer on Wednesday. He said the other justices leave the courtroom with deep appreciation for the privilege of sharing the bench with him.
Coming up, the founder and the former CFO of hedge fund Archegos Capital Management have been arrested. Both pleaded not guilty to fraud charges. Federal prosecutors say the two men engaged in manipulative trading and lied to banks. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. The federal government charged and arrested the founder of New York-based hedge fund Archegos Capital Management and its former chief financial officer for fraud and racketeering. They appeared in court on Wednesday and pleaded not guilty. Here are the details. Archegos Capital Management's owner, Bill Huang, and its former chief financial officer, Patrick Holligan, both pleaded not guilty in a federal court in Manhattan on Wednesday. U.S. Magistrate Judge Jennifer Willis ordered Huang released on a $100 million bond and Holligan released on a $1 million bond. This is what the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, says about the case. Starting in 2020 and continuing through March 2021, Huang and others propped up Archegos as a $36 billion house of cards. They did so by engaging in a constant cycle of, of manipulative trading, by lying to banks to obtain additional trading capacity, and then by using that additional capacity to engage in still more manipulative trading. Archegos, which is a family office, defaulted on margin calls in March of last year. The blow-up cost global banks, including Credit Suisse, Nomura Holdings, Morgan Stanley, and Deutsche Bank more than $10 billion in losses. Prosecutors say it nearly jeopardized our financial system. The scheme was historic in scope. The lies fed the inflation, and the inflation fed more lies. Round and round it went. Huang has 11 counts against him, including racketeering, market manipulation, and fraud. And Holligan has three charges against him. If proven, each charge carries a maximum prison sentence of 20 years. The SEC said it had sued Huang, Holligan, head trader William Tomita, and chief risk officer Scott Becker for their alleged roles in the scheme. This case is yet another example of our commitment to holding individuals, and not just corporate actors, accountable for misleading the markets and financial institutions. Huang and Holligan will make their next court appearance on May 19th. A man is facing murder and sexual assault charges in Arizona in two cold cases that are decades old. Mesa police and the FBI say they arrested 58-year-old Thomas Cox in Colorado back in March. He's accused of a homicide and two sexual assaults committed more than 30 years ago. The homicide happened in 1989. Police say a woman was found dead in her apartment. The victim had also been sexually assaulted. A second case in 1990 involved a woman who was also sexually assaulted this was after a man broke into her apartment, but she survived the attack. Authorities used DNA and fingerprint comparisons to identify Cox as a suspect. He faces several charges, including murder, sexual assault, and kidnapping. The Los Angeles Sheriff is launching a criminal investigation into a stolen video that was leaked to the LA Times, and he plans to question the reporter. Experts say the reporter is protected by the First Amendment. Entities Arlene Richards has the story. Morning, everyone. Sheriff Alex Villanueva announced in a press conference Monday that he and other agencies are launching an investigation into a stolen video. 
Remember, what was taken from the department was an active criminal case. The video, which the LA Times published after it was leaked to a reporter, shows a deputy kneeling on an inmate. The sheriff says the department was actively investigating the incident when the video went missing. He said the investigation is not about the leak, but involves an obstruction of justice. He identified three individuals he wants to talk to. So here are the three individuals that we want to know a lot about. This person said he gave it to this person. This person is actually authorized to receive the completed investigation. But somehow it landed in the hands of the third person, the reporter from the LA Times. So now First Amendment experts Roy Gutterman and Jean Polisinski agree that the reporter doesn't have to answer the sheriff's questions. Under California law, reporters are protected from revealing their sources. I, I would say this is definitely a, a First Amendment issue. Reporters have a right to report on public affairs and, and use public records. An innocent third party uh, cannot be prevented from use of material, even if that material was obtained without authorization by somebody else. Both experts agree there's no violation of the First Amendment to ask the reporter questions in the furtherance of an investigation. Sheriff Villanueva clarified in a tweet that he is not pursuing criminal charges against the LA Times reporter. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. A teenager jumps out of a moving car as police chase it down. Please note, the following video could be disturbing to some viewers. It happened early Wednesday morning. Police were pursuing an allegedly stolen car driven by a 16-year-old near Columbus, Ohio. At one point during the chase, a teen in the car jumped out while it was still moving. He then tried to flee on foot. Police say he was wearing a neck brace that he got from a previous accident in a stolen vehicle. Officers caught the teen and took him to a behavioral health facility. The incident happened not even 12 hours after a separate incident where police arrested a 16-year-old and a 15-year-old driving an alleged stolen car. This mountain lion was apparently not ready to indulge in the resort treatment. The Arizona Game and Fish Department says the animal nearly walked into the entrance of the Lowe's Ventana Canyon Resort in Tucson Monday, but quickly changed its mind. The department posted this video of it on social media. As you can see, the wild animal heads right for the doors, but as soon as the doors open, it runs. Arizona game and fish officials believe the automatic doors scared the animal. They say the young mountain lion appeared to be learning its way around the area and was not a danger. Mountain lions are common in the Sabino Canyon area, but the department says they have only received a few reports of incidents with them. 2021's Hurricane Ida will be the last hurricane with that name. The World Meteorological Organization Hurricane Committee says it has retired the name Ida from the rotating list of possible names for Atlantic tropical cyclones. They point to the extent of deadly destruction caused by Hurricane Ida last year as the reason for its removal. The storm caused 55 deaths directly and 32 deaths indirectly in the U.S. NOAA reports it also caused $75 billion in damages. Imani will replace Ida when this list is used again in 2027. In all, 94 storm names have been retired since 1953. And still to come, China's commuter workers are suffering under the regime's zero COVID policy. Some say they can't even go back to their homes. All that and more here on NTD News.
According to a U.S. government report, China appears to be unfairly dominating markets using its intellectual property laws. It says Beijing has strengthened patent and copyright laws to some extent, but adds it's not enforcing them or implementing them sufficiently. The report was released on Wednesday. In it, the U.S. trade representative said, China must provide a level playing field for intellectual property protection and enforcement. The report raised concerns about China's bad faith trademarks, counterfeiting, and online piracy. The report also created a priority watch list flagging countries for significant concerns over poor intellectual property protection. Seven countries made the list. Those are Argentina, Chile, China, India, Indonesia, Russia, and Venezuela. In the meantime, the U.S. Trade Representative's office is recognizing Taiwan for making strides to protect its trade secrets. The office named online piracy as a top concern. A special report keeps track of the protection of intellectual property and how that's being enforced between U.S. trading partners. The office noted efforts by Taiwan, the European Union, and Chile to step up their game in protecting trade secrets. To boost those goals, Taiwan's legislature made changes not too long ago to the island's intellectual property laws. What's more, according to manufacturers, the trade representative report shows there is concrete action taking place to protect innovation in the manufacturing industry. The National Association of Manufacturers issued a statement saying innovation and intellectual property are the lifeblood for manufacturing in the U.S. It went on to say, urge the U.S. trade representative and other agencies to stand up for innovative manufacturers by knocking down these barriers and by pushing back against those who would weaken critical intellectual property protections around the world. The number one institution in the U.S. Chamber of Commerce on intellectual property standards also weighed in on the report. The senior vice president said the governments have two options. They can either support systems that help people who have novel ideas get a fair shot at success, or they can roll back protections leading to less prosperity. He said the trade report shows that many countries still have far to go to ensure intellectual property rights. China's commuter workers are struggling to make ends meet. Beijing's zero-COVID policy is severely restricting travel between cities and provinces. Here's that story. For Chinese commuter workers on the outskirts of Beijing, waking up in the early mornings to travel miles away for work has gotten even tougher than before. I cannot go back home. If you go back home, you'll be quarantined. 62-year-old Lao Yuan and many others like him rely on ease of travel to make a living. But China's strict zero-COVID policy has upended their lives completely. Analysts at Nomura estimate nearly 350 million people in China are currently facing some form of lockdown, and movement between cities and provinces has been severely restricted. Some workers haven't been able to go home, while others have struggled to find any work at all. During the pandemic, there are very few jobs. It's hard to earn money. We don't earn enough, and the city police chase us away. The pandemic situation changes quite fast. For example, yesterday, Beijing was not rated as high risk. But in the morning, when you wake up, the city has a star labeled next to it on the tracing app. The government should give preferential treatment to those who work, the migrant workers. Not only do they not give preferential treatment, they oppress us. Towns like Yanjiao have seen explosive growth over the past decade, as hundreds of thousands of residents commuted to and from nearby Beijing on a daily basis before COVID. 
But now, many face difficult requirements just to earn a commuter pass, allowing them to step foot inside the city. For the commuter pass, you'll need proof of employment, a 48-hour COVID-19 test result, proof of residency and such. Now, people are saying it's not being issued anymore. Beijing has started stepping up entry checks and locking down some public spaces as it announced plans to test nearly all of its 22 million residents for COVID this week. China has reported what appears to be the world's first known human case of H3N8 bird flu. China's health commission said the infected person is a four-year-old boy. He was hospitalized on April 10th in Hunan province. His close contacts did not show any abnormalities during the medical surveillance period. H3N8 is known to infect horses, seals, and dogs. The CDC says it's one of two strains that cause dog flu in the United States. Chinese authorities explained that the virus has a low chance of human-to-human transmission, and there have been no reports of human infections. But one virologist warned that despite its rarity, infection in humans could lead to adaptive mutations. It's possible that this could make the virus more likely to spread in mammals. And still to come, French President Emmanuel Macron will be announcing a new prime minister in the coming days. A French political analyst offers his thoughts on who that person will be. Find out more in just a minute. In France, President Emmanuel Macron received a warm welcome during his first public appearance since his re-election, except for one incident when he was attacked with cherry tomatoes. According to a conservative policy analyst, the election results show France becoming polarized with patriots and nationalists on one side and leftists or liberals on the other. We've got more from NTD's France correspondent David Vives. French President Emmanuel Macron, fresh off his election victory, is already back on the campaign trial, ahead of June's parliamentary vote. During his first public appearance since his re-election, locals were excited to see him in a left-leaning suburb of Paris. But at one point, his security personnel unfolded an umbrella to protect him from attacks with cherry tomatoes. A few days after the presidential election, there are several takes on Macron's victory. Though Macron comfortably defeated his opponent, An analysis shows only 38% of registered voters voted for him. That makes him the worst elected French president for over 50 years. This is due to a low mobilization of voters. At the same time, Macron was ahead in France's 12 largest cities. In Paris, 85% of residents voted for him. It's an outcome that reinforces his reputation of being a president of big towns, whereas in rural area, his opponent Marine Le Pen was ahead. It is also rural France that saw the rise of the Yellow Vest movement. According to conservative publisher and policy analyst Pierre-Yves Rougeron, there is a notable polarization in French society. That is to say that we are entering into an increasingly radical fragmentation of the population, which can be seen on a map. That is to say, in the areas where Macron came out on top, people support him even more, whereas the patriots' areas are more patriotic than before. Polling data shows the majority of seniors voted for Macron. Almost all political parties called on their supporters to vote for him in order to block nationalist Le Pen. And Rougeron says the nationalist parties 
cannot match the financial support Macron's party has received. Macron, il a le sponsor. Et les sponsors, on les aura jamais. Macron has sponsors. We would never have them. Because the French upper class is not the American upper class. In contrast to the US or England, the French upper class would rather sell the country out than serve it. Rougeron says that Macron did not score well considering the support he received from other parties and media outlets. Là, Emmanuel Macron a Emmanuel Macron had the support of the traitors of the Republican Party, the power of the media, of the whole system. Despite all this, he only performed at 58%. So as I said, it's no longer a strong system, it's a heavy system, which is not quite the same thing. Macron, as well as nationalist and leftist candidates, will fight to get ahead in the parliamentarian elections in June. A majority for his party in parliament will be crucial for the newly elected president to get his bills approved. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. French President Emmanuel Macron is expected to announce a new prime minister after winning a second term this past weekend. A French political analyst says the new prime minister is expected to embody a new phase of Macron's presidency. Here are the details. French Prime Minister Jean Castex has said that he and his government would resign if Macron is re-elected president. That means Macron will announce a replacement for him in the coming days. French political analyst Arnaud Benedetti says Macron must show that this mandate is a new mandate. The prime minister who will be named ahead of June's legislative elections must be a fighting prime minister, a prime minister who will have to lead a political campaign because he will have to take the position of future majority leader at the French National Assembly. If the president wants to implement his program, he will need the majority at the French National Assembly. Macron said that he would name a female prime minister who is strong on social and environmental issues. It can be either a choice of a woman or a choice for political marketing. In France, we have obviously had only one female prime minister. Several names have been floated by parliament and presidential sources, but Benedetti says it's too hard to tell who Macron will eventually nominate. What we have noticed with Emmanuel Macron is that he has always been surprising on the choice of his prime ministers. All the names we could hear were generally false leads, so we must remain careful on Emmanuel Macron's choice in a few days' time concerning the next prime minister. Potential candidates include France's Minister for Work, the Finance Minister, the Interior Minister, and the Chief of the European Central Bank. Toxic foam covered parts of a river in a small town near Bogota, Colombia on Wednesday. The local government says the foam floating on the Balsillas River comes from detergent waste dumped into the river. However, residents in the area complain that the foam is not just soap and that its residue is corrosive, seriously affecting the community. A local shopkeeper complained about losing clients every time the foam appears because the unpleasant smell drives customers away. One resident said her health declined since the appearance of the foam. She says that now she has to use an inhaler because her lungs are bad. And just ahead, tennis superstar Rafael Nadal presented the UAX Rafa Nadal Sports University. That's part of an effort to promote sports research. Find out more right here on NTD News.
Today in Madrid, Rafael Nadal presented the UAX Rafa Nadal Sports University. It's a project aimed at promoting studies in the sports industry. The Spanish tennis player said he was happy to contribute to an educational program involving sports and health. The Alfonso X University said Nadal's team will be key to bringing their values in sports methodology to the project. Australian Open champion Nadal will return to the courts after a month-long absence due to injury. He will complete, compete at the ATP Masters 1000 Madrid Open that begins later this week. The 35-year-old last played in the final at Indian Wells on March 20th. He suffered a stress fracture in his rib during the tournament. The injury forced him to miss clay court events in Monte Carlo and Barcelona. The former world number one's return to action comes a little under a month before the French Open, where he will bid for a 14th title. Tennis world number three, Alexander Zverev, missed out on the title at the just-past Munich Open. The German player almost collapsed as he apologized to the audience. To be honest, I don't know what to say. It was abysmal. I'm sorry for the spectators. I'm sorry for the tournament that I played this way. I really did my best, even though that was probably not noticeable on the court. It was maybe the worst match I played in the past five, six, or seven years that I've been on tour. Home favorite Zverev reached the quarterfinals in his past five appearances, but regrettably lost to Danish teenager Holger Ruin Wednesday. The 18-year-old took things to another level. In a flawless performance, he broke Zverev four times on his way and made his first win over a player in the ATP Top 10. Zverev told reporters that he was very nervous before the match, playing in front of a German audience for the first time in three years. But he acknowledged that his young Danish opponent is a good player. While Rune continues to prepare for the quarterfinals, Zverev will have to get back on his feet before the upcoming Madrid Masters next week. Spanish cyclist Edward Prades saw the funny side after crashing as he celebrated what he thought was a victory on the opening stage of the Tour of Hellas. The rider's saddle appeared to slip from under him as he crossed the finish line. It left the 34-year-old sliding along the ground while other riders avoid crashing into him. To make matters worse, he then discovered that he was in fact second. Aaron Gate of New Zealand had crossed the line two minutes earlier. Gate had been part of a breakaway group. On finding out that he had finished second, Prades joked that at least he would have a nice finishing line photograph for his newly born son. Mexico City welcomed a life-size replica of the Vatican's Sistine Chapel in the capital's historic city center. The replica is made of thousands of high-resolution photographs of the masterpiece frescoes. They are arranged in equal proportion to the original building in the Vatican. The exhibit opened its doors on April 21st and will remain open to the public for three weeks. During its first week, the exhibition received more than 150,000 visitors. According to local media, Mexico City's authorities hope to reach one million visitors while the replica remains in the city. The replica commemorates the 30th anniversary of the reestablishment of diplomatic relations between the Mexican state and the Vatican. In June 2016, the exhibit was installed in front of the Monument to the Revolution. The city streets around the Netherlands streamed with festival goers wearing orange on Wednesday. People were out celebrating King's Day in traditional fashion with music and open-air markets. This was the first time since 2019 the national holiday was celebrated without COVID-19 restrictions. 
The holiday celebrates King Willem Alexander, who turned 55 on Wednesday. He was visiting the southern city of Maastricht with his family, keeping a promise postponed for two years due to the pandemic. People wear orange in honor of the ruling House of Orange in Amsterdam. King's Eve is comparable to New Year's Eve. Tens of thousands of celebrators fill the streets, and party boats with dancing people fill Amsterdam's canals. On King's Day itself, free markets are set up in most towns. People build makeshift stalls or lay out carpets to sell possessions they no longer want or need for a few cents or a few euros. The festivities traditionally last late into the evening, but King's Day fell on a Wednesday this year, and most revelers had to work on Thursday. The world's largest blue diamond to ever come to auction just sold for more than $57.5 million. It's called the De Beers Cullinum Blue. It's a 15.10 carat gem. It sold Wednesday at Sotheby's in Hong Kong after an eight-minute bidding war among four hopeful buyers. The diamond was only estimated to bring in $48 million, but an anonymous buyer on the phone pushed up the price. The rare diamond was found in South Africa's Kolonon Mine last year. It has the highest ranking that colored diamonds are judged by. It's described as exceptionally rare, so take one last look. Vitamin D is known as the sun vitamin, but it's actually a hormone with several different jobs. Let's look at why it's so important. Here's Gina Marie who brings us Strong Mind and Body. When the pandemic arrived, supporting the immune system became critical. This shot vitamin D into the limelight. Vitamin D is a powerful contributor for a healthy immune system, but that's not its only function. Dr. Ashley Turner, a certified functional medicine practitioner, says that vitamin D status is something I monitor very closely. Vitamin D is really considered a hormone. It is found in the skin from sun exposure and is activated in the liver and kidneys. Vitamin D supports many important functions in our bodies. However, vitamin D deficiency is a big problem in the US. Magnesium is too. Magnesium is critical to get physiological mileage out of vitamin D. These symptoms indicate low-level vitamin D. Fatigue, migraines, muscle pain and weakness, depression, low immune function, hormone dysfunction, and if left unchecked, they may lead to increased risk of cancer, autoimmune disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, cardiovascular problems, and osteoporosis. So how can you make the most of vitamin D? It's very important to consume a nutrient-dense diet. These foods will help. Pasture-raised egg yolks, grass-fed red meat, organ meats like liver, grass-fed raw dairy products including ghee, butter, cream, milk, kefir and cheese, cod liver oil, wild-caught fish including salmon, herring and sardines, and pasture-raised lard, duck or chicken fat. Many people are chronically sick without realizing it. Exposure to vibrant natural sunlight can do so much for us. We rely on our skin to be the best activator for producing vitamin D. It's best to get about 20 to 30 minutes a day of direct sunlight between the hours of 10am and 3pm. For fair skin, take it gradually to avoid burning. 
dark skin will need a longer exposure. So the question is, should you supplement vitamin D? This requires careful monitoring by a registered clinician. Being a hormone, not everyone needs it, and too much can become toxic. When understanding its importance to human health and the levels required, vitamin D can be a life-changing nutrient. There's a future multi-millionaire somewhere on the West Coast. Powerball officials say a ticket sold in Arizona won the $473 million jackpot last night. The person who has this ticket can choose between just over $283 million and a lump sum payment or take the whole amount spread in 30 graduated payments before taxes. This is the third Powerball jackpot win thus far this year. There were other winning tickets sold Wednesday, including one worth $1 million purchased in Indiana. The numbers were 11, 36, 61, 62, and 68, with four as the Powerball. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email on screen. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, Kevin Hogan. NTD News, New York City.